Indigenous communities in the Arctic are seeing the dramatic impact of climate change firsthand, but new tech is helping them preserve old traditions despite a radically transforming environment. I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. With me is our senior European correspondent, Katie Collins. So you have a story taking a fascinating look at how these indigenous communities are adapting to climate change by embracing technology. But before we get to the details of that, can you give us some context on just how bad a problem this is up in the Arctic? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, uh, for people living up in the Arctic, they're the ones who are really feeling the real-time impacts of climate change Um the worst and also the first. Um, I think, you know, one of the biggest issues that they're facing is that there's been a huge problem with the sea ice melting across the whole of the Arctic, which is creating such instability for their lifestyles. Not only is it encroaching on the territories in which they live, it's also changing their ability to hunt and fish and live this kind of sustainable lifestyle that they've lived for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years that they've just been kind of up there on the ice, um, depending on uh, certain conditions and also their understanding and knowledge of these conditions to really uh, ensure that they can kind of live in a, in the way that they want to live. You know, I think a particularly big problem that they're facing is that there's this kind of knowledge that people in indigenous communities have and this understanding that's passed down from generation to generation about, um, you know, what the environment, how to read the environment around them, how to read, read the weather, how to predict and understand what's going on. And they're very, you know, they've for a long time, they've been totally in tune with this. But as things are changing and, you know, the the, the conditions are becoming so unpredictable that that knowledge is no longer applicable. You know, they, they're struggling to um, be able to say, you know, oh, it's, um, you know, it's it's safe to go out on the ice or the weather's going to change uh, and we need to, you know, hunker down. That, that, that knowledge that they have is, they can't rely on it in the same way. So it's, there's all sorts of threats really to their livelihoods. Yeah, I imagine that institutional knowledge, once it becomes a lot less reliable to use on, that really throws up your throws up in the air the, the way society works up there. Now you, you talked about you talked with an organization called Smart Ice, which provides climate change adaptation tools. Can you talk a bit about this group and what exactly are the tools that they offer? This is a really interesting group that's kind of uh, based in um, Newfoundland. And basically, it's like a, it's an organization that's using sensors um, to to build tools that are able to, uh, you know, track and understand the ice conditions. Um, it used to be the case, and, and it still is to a certain extent, that, you know, you would go out on the ice and you would use a harpoon to uh, to test the ice as you went um, and the, those readings again that you you know you made with your harpoon were fairly reliable and you know once once you understood the ice conditions then that knowledge kind of saw you through a season whereas now that isn't the case so using sensor technology um, smart ice has created a couple of different sensors one that can be kind of embedded in the ice and you know can provide uh, readings to local communities, another one that can be kind of dragged behind a, um, a snowmobile. And, you know, these readings are making a huge difference to the, the hunting and fishing that people are able to do. Um, and, and it's basically, it's guaranteeing the safety of entire communities on the ice. And not only is a really important part, I think, of what Smart Ice does, um, it's not just 
building and creating this technology, which they do all from scratch locally. You know, it's not outsourced to other places, but um, they also, there's a huge educational and social part of this company. Uh, and what they're doing is they're ensuring that wherever they go, you know, wherever they take this this technology because there's demand from communities i mean specifically in north america right now but you know across the arctic is that when they go to communities and they take this technology they ensure that they train people up locally um, those people are then employed um it's it's providing jobs for people um it's providing you know it's it, they're, they're trying to empower the communities that they're going to as well so that those communities can maintain the technology themselves and you know they can they can both they can read it and that they can understand it and use it but that those people within the communities are totally kind of independent from them in many ways. You bring up a good point, and it's this notion of introducing technology, and, and, and maybe I'm just oversimplifying it, but you know, the, these uh, indigenous folks are, you know, they've got their traditions, they've got a way of living that may or may not have incorporated things like the use of sensors. How, how does an organization like Smart Eyes come in and, and convince uh, these communities to use this technology? Or is there a willingness because People there realize things are changing and they're changing rapidly and they need, you know, this this kind of assistance, these this kind of technology to really help survive. Yeah, I think it's it that's such an interesting question because I definitely think that people within indigenous communities are very well aware that they are in quite um a difficult situation right now. And, you know, they are going to need to um, rethink a lot of things and ad- adapt and and you know as as you can imagine living in that kind of environment they are used to adapting anyway you know that adaptation is one of the skills that they have um, and one of the skills that they've always needed to, in order to be able to keep living up there but I think um, one of the most interesting things I found out when I was writing this story is that for such a long time uh, people, you know, scientists and technologists have been going into Arctic communities for decades. Um, and quite often a lot of the the research and the information that they discover there, they kind of then take out of those communities and the people who are in the communities are not served by it. Whereas I think when they see people coming in to those communities who actually want to work with them and provide something for them and allow them to engage in science and tech like in an active way that's not you know just them being data or um you know something to be used for a project that's going to happen elsewhere you know i think that there is definitely you know it creates a different atmosphere they are more receptive to it and they i think you know the fact that this technology has originated in the arctic it's come from the communities themselves that has you know that's that's important and it also is different to a lot of other tech that's imposed on them, shall we say. That's a good point. It's a good segue to one of the projects that is a community-driven one that you talk about in your story. It's Siku or S-I-K-U. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But talk a little bit about that that app and you know how it takes some of that data and actually makes it useful for the folks in those communities. Yeah, so um, Siku is um, is an app that was actually it was only launched at the end of last year, and it's already won a Google Impact Award. It was created by an organization called the Arctic Ida Association, and they're actually a tech 
organization, a social organization. And uh, the way that they described it to me is that IDA was the original technology that was of use to Arctic indigenous communities um, because it's the thing that kind of keeps them warm and it's the it's the thing that, you know, revolutionized life in the Arctic and allow people to live up there. Um, and Siku is, uh, it's kind of, it's a social platform. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of gives you an idea of the way it works. It's uh, all of the data on it comes from uh, individuals. And it's, it basically is, it's kind of a mapping platform and it also has a home feed and People can, as they're going around hunting and fishing, they can report things that they experience on the ice and uh, they can post pictures, they can post status updates, they can post weather updates, um, all sorts of different information is posted on there. Um, and the idea is that it allows people to share that both within their own community and you know among other communities across the Arctic. So whereas those systems that I mentioned earlier that they had those knowledge systems um, perhaps are you know increasingly unfortunately um, becoming less and less useful they can technology is kind of stepping in to take that place to provide them with a place where they can track things and they can understand things they can understand what's going on around them and um, you know they can see perhaps the migration patterns as well as being driven by the community um, it's also been really a really important part of this for people to be able to um, own their own data so unlike you know platforms that we're perhaps used to like Facebook and Instagram where our data is never our own really everything that is posted on this platform very much belongs to the people who posted it. You spent a fair amount of time in your article talking about reindeer herding the practice of reindeer herding what a good sense of how climate change is affecting this practice and how folks are adapting to it. Absolutely I spoke to some people who had you know real first-hand knowledge of reindeer herding which especially in Europe and, you know, across the northern reaches of Russia too, is such an important part of the indigenous cultures up there. Um, And, you know, it's not just a cultural practice, the keeping of reindeer, it's a very important source of food, but it is also a cultural thing as well, um, the keeping of reindeer. But reindeer need huge, vast areas to... um, to be able to live properly, they have these migration patterns and traditional reindeer hus- husbandry involves, you know, traveling with the um, with the animals as they migrate across, um, you know, miles and miles and miles. Um, uh, and increasingly um, the weather and, you know, lots of other environmental factors like um, actually a lot of land is being taken off indigenous people in the north as well for um uh, you know, green energy projects, ironically, but you know the the freezing of the um, of the tundra means that they can't get through in the same way to the to the lichen and the grass underneath that they need to survive. They can't can, they can't keep doing these migration patterns, and you know, increasingly the reindeer uh, husbandry is under threat up there um, as a way of life. And one of the ways that I mean, there, there are a few different ways that this is being tackled. They're relying on, uh, reindeer herders are relying on technology such as drones in order to, you know, there are fewer humans out there with the reindeer. And so they're really relying on drones and things to see where the, all of the reindeer are. They're also tagging the reindeer with GPS collars to to keep a track of them. And, you know, just actually just some really basic technology well you know stuff that we would think of as basic just being able to have better connectivity you know if you're 
if you're a, a single reindeer herder out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Arctic, and you're out in the tundra or in the snow, you're going to want to be able to communicate with someone back home if something goes wrong. You know, in the past, there would be a group of you. And if something went wrong, perhaps someone might be able to go and fetch help or uh, something like that. But now if it's just one person, you know, it, that that connect that even just that basic connectivity really makes a huge difference. That's a great point you're making there because I'm curious as to how strong that connectivity is and what the, the cellular service picture looks like. Because, I mean, I drove up to some parts of upstate New York and I can't get service. So it's it's hard for me to imagine what or how strong that signal is up in the Arctic. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure it varies very much depending on whereabouts you are. Um, and I imagine it comes and goes quite a lot. I mean, it's. I know that in, for example, in northern Canada, all of the Nunavut communities now have, you know, have signal at least in their villages. So, if even if they're not able to kind of report things that they see on the ice, if they're using Siku, for example, they might be have to upload that when they get home rather than when they're out on the ice. But um, when I was speaking to some people who live in the far reaches of Norway, they were saying that actually the infrastructure is fairly good up there, not just roads and hospitals and things like that, but also signal because I think the, and, and cell phone coverage, I think the government sees great potential in the North for these, you know, green energy projects, for mining projects and is planning kind of further expansion, which is, you know, a problem as well for for some indigenous communities because it's encroaching on land that typically would be theirs. And, you know, what looks like pristine wilderness that, that's just for the taking is is actually ancient lands that's be, that have been used for generations and generations to herd reindeer across. They're not actually, it's not actually wilderness at all. It's uh, very much kind of belongs to those communities. But um, because of because of that, the government has ensured that there's a certain amount of coverage that's available up there. But, you know, it's really hard to say. And I imagine it's not all that reliable. No, I imagine that's, that's really tough. This has been the final part of CNET's road trip series, which, you know, we spent the last several months looking at how technology is helping to prepare, address, and recover from natural disasters. And while climate change isn't exactly a traditional sense of a natural disaster, it's, it's obviously a big issue that uh, really the world has to figure out. Curious on your end, Katie, what inspired you to take on this story? Yeah, I think a couple of things, really. I mean, I've really been interested in the Arctic for a really long time. I think I first became interested in the Arctic when I read uh, Philip Pullman's uh, his Dark Materials series when I was about 12. But then when I was, I think when I was about 14, 15, we took a family trip to, to Lapland and um, that we were in actually in Finland, in the very north of Finland in the Arctic Circle. And I got to experience some uh, local Sami culture there myself. And I, it's just something that's always kind of fascinated me. But I think, and so I think that that's definitely one element, but I've, you know, I've, I've been following the conversation around the climate crisis for for a while now and i think i've just been really curious personally to know how these communities that really you know have these such traditional ways of life i've been really curious to know how, what they're doing you know i i was sure because and because i've i've done some re reporting in 
you know, I guess more remote regions of the world. A, a long time ago now, I, I did some reporting out in Africa and I think that it's always surprising to people when they find that, you know, technology, the, the best solutions for communities living in remote places actually come from within the communities themselves. Um, you know, the people there often know what their needs are, perhaps more than people in Silicon Valley do, for example, and the things that they're coming up with. And I, I knew that there would be things in these communities um, and solutions that people were coming up with it that I didn't know about. And I was really curious to find out what they were. Um, so I think that was the thing that that really drove me to to pursue this story. Well, it's a fascinating story, one worth reading. Thank you for your time, Katie. You can check out Katie's story on CNET.com. If you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge or sign up for direct text messages from me by heading to cnet.co slash daily charge. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate the podcast. It really does help us out. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.